the Buck Off Podcast with Lane Grant. Hosted by Christopher Rennie and joined by Jordan Williams. Welcome everybody, this is your host Christopher Rennie bringing you another episode of Buck Off. We are getting pretty deep into this offseason already and it is already kind of wearing on me that football has ended in the college realm and the NFL is coming to an end soon but me and Jordan are always bringing it to you guys and I'm here with Jordan as always. How are you doing today Jordan? Uh, I'm I'm doing good. Uh, a lot of good stuff to talk about. I'm almost done moving, which is great. I still haven't gotten no sleep, but you know, whatever. Uh, that doesn't matter. We're talking football. We're talking Ohio State. Uh, so I'm 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 always good when we get to talk Ohio State. Yeah, and I I think we we've talked about this a lot. Even in like slow weeks during the regular season that were supposed to be slow weeks. The Ohio State news cycle is something that just never stops giving you stuff to talk about. And like this week, it was a bunch of little things, but I think there are a lot of little things that are kind of important. I need to touch on, you know, nothing crazy happened. Nothing like out of like the world. We didn't have any scandals. We didn't have anything else. The NCAA is doing some conversating. They voted on some constitutional stuff. So there's always news to talk about in college football. And I was thinking we might have to go national a little bit on this show, but then I started doing the show plan. I was like, dang, we've got like six or seven topics here, all Ohio State related, and it's January 20th, two weeks after the season ended. Yeah. um, Ohio State is the gift that keeps on giving. Because we felt, I mean, I know, I remember in the summer when we first started doing this, you know, I'd come up with the the ranking players thing, and we are like, yeah, we're really going to need that. And then some shows, it's like, um, we're going to have to cut some stuff, or this show's going to be two hours, middle of, middle of the summer, where there shouldn't be any news. And there's so much news that we almost didn't get to our series, uh, or the podcast would run long. And it's like, yeah, Ohio State's the gift that keeps on giving. There's always something to talk about. Yeah. And- which is why... It's crazy. It's yeah, absolutely but that's crazy. why there's so many. There's so like, I mean, like you could count how many quote unquote Twitter famous people there are that are buck that that just only talk about the Buckeyes. There's a million podcasts. I mean, Langrant Holy Land has a bunch on their own. There's Buckeye Talk. There's all these other ones. Um, even like because they're Ohio guys, even like flipping the field, which is a national podcast, spends almost half of every show talking about Ohio State. Like, um, I mean, there's so many blog sites, podcasts, recruiting experts, all that other kind. Of, I mean, Cleveland.com talks about the Buckeyes more than they talk about the Browns, in my opinion. <laughs> like, yeah. So it's because I mean, there's a news cycle that never stops and Ohio State fans always want more. Yeah, it's crazy. I I think it's like you'd expect the market to get saturated at some point, but Ohio State fans are so faithful. They want so much news. They want so much opinion surrounding every single piece of news that comes out that they're always willing to listen to something. Yeah, that's exciting because, I mean, that's why me and Jordan are here and it gives us something to like it gives us something to work for. And we get to provide you guys with something every single Friday and it's exciting. So we're glad to have you all here on a weekly basis. And this show is going to be fun. We are we're going to have a lot of fun on this show. Uh, but yeah, you want to? We can get started now. Let's get started here. So we're we're gonna we're gonna get started with the uh, Notre Dame Buckeyes. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Notre Dame. Uh, Marcus Freeman 
you know, he wants to do some stuff that you just can't do at Ohio State, apparently. Winning championships, you know, not in a conference. You know, it's easy to, you know, win a championship when you don't play for one every single year. Yeah, uh, I would he, do. I mean, being it, the coach of the Ohio State Fighting Irish sounds fun. Yeah, and, you know, Marcus Freeman uh, did not do anything to keep any sort of love from Ohio State. And, you know, it even brought some people back who are a little bit older than me and Jordan who were saying, yeah, Marcus Freeman wasn't even really that good of a linebacker at Ohio State. It brought that level of vitriol. And, you know, oh, wow. Ohio State fans. Ohio State fans are usually pretty, unless you burn the bridge, Ohio State fans usually love anyone who played there. Like, it doesn't matter yep. if you were a starter, if you were a backup, if you were a marginal special teams guy. Like, I think every single Ohio State fan, if Jagger LaRue finds a place, will be a huge fan of that place. That's how much Ohio State fans love their players. Yeah, I, I, uh, I can't. I hope he's somewhere that's on TV. Um, did you Did you read Bill Landis's article on him? Yeah, it was awesome. I, I think it was. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> I mean, the fact that like Bill Landis even thought to do an article on a three year walk on quarterback. Like, come on now. Like, yeah. and, like that. And it was a. It was a great article. It was. Yeah, I, yeah. I want to go on record here. This is the first tangent of the show, so this is going to be oh, the first of many tangents because the <laughs> five, five minutes into the show, we're on we, our first we tangent. Got a tangent. All right. But all right, here we go. So Jared Larue is a walk on. All right, everyone knows that but i just want everyone to know that just because there's a wo next to his name and he's not on scholarship doesn't mean he's bad at football and i think a Mm. lot of people think oh he's just a walk-on like no this dude won a texas state championship before he got to ohio state and what a lot of people forget is like and maybe they just maybe it's not even they don't that they forget they just don't know there are a lot of players who turn down scholarships to be a preferred walk on and it's not just at Ohio State but Ohio State Alabama some of these other places because it's just whether they're fans better culture they're going to get developed better this that or the third like sometimes largely if your family can afford to pay to send you to school or you can get academic scholarships it is better to be a walk-on than be on scholarship somewhere else. And one of the things about Jagger LaRoe in particular that I like that he mentioned is he said, first of all, Ohio State is not one of the places that treats walk-ons like crap where, like, they don't get practice reps. Obviously not in season, but, like, a lot of the walk-ons are the ones who are running your scout teams and stuff like that. And he's like, when I first got here, I'm literally running scout team for Chase Young. I'm running scout team against Jeff Okuda Okuda, and, and, like, all of these guys, like – like, yeah, I'm think about good. that. <laughs> like, and I, I, I want to go like CJ Stroud might not play defense of that caliber on a Saturday. Jack LaRue is playing that defense every single day in practice. Yeah, because so, Ohio it, State has enough people where they they probably Ohio State probably practices like NFL teams do, where it's like the one defense against like the walk on squad of offense or the practice squad and vice versa for offense. Like they're definitely not doing ones a lot, and it's 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 probably very rarely ones versus twos. It's really probably ones versus threes because there's so many people on the roster because uh, they have a million walk-ons. I mean, they have two walk-on quarterbacks. Yeah. What's the other guy's name? J.P. Andrade. Yeah. And guess what? He had a record in California for the most passing yards in a single season. So, like, you know how many great quarterbacks have come from California? A lot of them. Almost every single one of them, it seems like, this point. Yeah, I think it's the second only to Texas in NFL quarterbacks. 
Yeah. And it's and it is going to change. Uh, that's going to change very quickly. It, maybe even in the next couple of years. They may not all work out, but CJ Stroud, um, JT Daniels, if he goes pro, Bryce Young, uh, Bryce Young, uh, Jackson Dart, if he goes pro, um, a million other guys. Who's the other USC quarterback? Because they lost three starting quarterbacks in a row. Who was the one in between JT and Jackson Dart? Caden Slovis. That got injured. Caden Slovis. If yeah. he goes pro, I think he's from the West Coast. Like, yeah, I mean. The West Coast is far behind in some parts of football, but it's definitely not at that position. Yeah, they don't have they don't have offense or defensive linemen no more. But they they got they got wide everyone. receivers and they got cornerback uh, quarterbacks. Yeah, but at the end of the day, like that article by Bill Landis, I think did a great job of putting in perspective like what walk ons do. Number one at Ohio State, and number two, like how talented they actually are. Like these guys yeah. aren't slouches when it comes to like football. They're really talented and. They could have taken FCS offers out of school. They could have taken lower FBS offers out of school. And, like, a lot of people don't understand that. And I just want people to realize that walk-on at Ohio State does not mean bad at football. And I think when Jagger LaRue entered the portal, a lot of people were like, oh, well, where's he going to go? He's a walk-on. And that's just not true. Like, he's going to find an option. He's going to find a place. He's got – for a quarterback, he's accurate. He's got a pretty strong arm. I thought he did well in the spring game when he got his opportunities, and I think that's really valuable experience. And he's trained by one of the best quarterback coaches in the country in Ryan Day. And you know what else was mentioned in that? And I want to talk about this a little bit more when we get to him in our our titles for the coaches segment. But Corey Dennis does most of the day-to-day work with the quarterbacks, which is something I think a lot of people don't realize. Yeah, I I knew that. Um, but, yeah, I do think a lot of people don't realize it because it's like – it's just how much – like how busy Ryan Day is as a head coach. And a lot of – is is Corey Dennis the one that's Urban's son-in-law or is yeah. it the other guy? Yeah, he's yeah. Urban's son-in-law. Yeah, a lot of people like crapped on that. And I understand that a decent part of it is like he's a young guy making a name for himself. So like Ryan Day wanted a mouthpiece. He wasn't going to like like it's different to go get like a Mike Yurisich and like make him quarterback coach. And he's like 30, 40. He really wants to do something like court. This is I'm not this is not a bad thing. But like if Ryan Day says we're teaching passing this way, Corey Dennis isn't going to be like, nah, coach, I have my own way of doing it. And 20 years of experience to say you're wrong. He's going to go do what Ryan Day wants him to do, but he still has to do it. Like he is the one that's with the the quarterbacks um, almost all the time. Um, I remember Justin Fields, his first year, said that Corey Dennis was basically like his personal quarterbacks coach. Like that's how much he was with him and all the time. Uh, Justin Fields was one of the first guys because that was before he was named the QB coach and he was speaking up for him when he got the job. So as an assistant, a GA, whatever his title was, he's right. Uh, um, Justin Fields is like, he's basically my personal quarterbacks coach. Like he was with me all the time. He taught me so much stuff. And then, um, and then when uh, the pandemic hit and Justin Fields last year, uh, Justin Fields basically said that 
in the quarterback room, it was only him and Ryan Day because Ryan Day wanted him away from everyone else because he didn't want him to catch COVID. So Corey Dennis was the one that was working with C.J. Stroud and Jack uh, Miller and all the other guys in the room preparing them for practice and stuff because Justin Fields was basically by himself most of the time so that there was no chance that if the quarterback room got COVID, he couldn't get it because he wasn't with them. So, like, Corey Dennis... Those two guys would be able to be. Yeah, exactly. Like, Corey Dennis does a lot of heavy lifting. Um, And I think a lot of people don't realize that because Ryan Day is the quote-unquote de facto quarterbacks coach and because he was technically good coach or not technically a nepotism hire like whatever yeah, and he's proven himself I think in a lot of ways we've seen it Justin Fields is great uh, obviously they're naturally gifted players but the execution the preparation he's the guy in there taking notes with these quarterbacks he's the guy in there clipping the film making sure they're seeing what ryan day is seeing what Corey dennis is seeing what the offense is seeing and that's just these are little things but there's a reason that he gets talked about so fondly by all these former quarterbacks by cj stroud by justin fields it's because he does a lot of work yeah and almost every maybe maybe um maybe um the most recent one, Devin Brown didn't, but like every quarterback who's committed to Ohio state in the last couple of years has that mentioned Corey Dennis's name at least once like recruits love him. <laughs> yeah. And, um, he's just, he's, we talked pre-show about one of the coaches you worked with when you were at Kent state. He's just one of those guys who kind of has it. It feels like. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, where else is he going? <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. Like, he's one of those guys. Like, 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 unless he wants to be an offensive coordinator, he's going to be at Ohio State for 30 years because there's not a better quarterback's coach job out here. Yeah, and, and at some point, point, he could end up being the offensive coordinator at Ohio State. Yeah. I mean, think about it. Oh, like, Ohio State's quality control coach. Ohio State has so much, uh, has so much power behind it that – Ohio State's quality control coach is now the quarterback's coach at Akron. And you can say it's just Akron, but Akron is a Division One. It's, like, it's, it's an FBS school. And your first job is a quarterback coach at Akron for um, whatever Moorhead, whatever his name is, who is a, is a very smart offensive mind. Um, and that's your first job. You didn't have to go FCS. You only have to go Division two or three. You didn't start out at Mount Union. Uh, you didn't start out at like you know none of these places. Your first job is in the MAC, like the literally the breeding ground for Big Ten coaches. Like yeah. how many coaches everywhere started in the MAC? Like uh, Lance Leopold started in the MAC. Um, uh, the guy PJ Fleck at Minnesota started in the MAC. Um, um, uh, the guy at Iowa State, Matt Campbell, started in the MAC. He was at Toledo when I was in there. Dino Babers at Syracuse started in the Mac. These are all people who were in the Mac That's when I was recent. in college, by the way. And you like, got, like, this is like... And then you've got guys like, guess where Woody Hayes started? <clears throat> the Mac. And he's an all-time great coach. So, like, it, it's, it's, it's Nick incredible. Nick Saban started in the Mac. Yeah, Kent State. Ernie Meyer started in the Mac. Um, Green, um, Every Lou, great Lou coach. Hurt, is that his name? Not, Lou Holt started uh, in the Mac. Yeah, the old the the Notre Dame guy. That's the new host, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he just got. I don't know how he just got in there, but he's in the Kent State Hall of Fame. He started in my. He started at Kent State. Like, yeah, and that's your first job. Like your first job is the quarterback coach at Akron. And Joe Moore has those kind of, guys. He'll have yeah. those guys humming. I think honestly, just with his simplistic yeah. offense and like his creativity, they'll be fine. And Akron's sure. a tough job, but like every job with Max is a tough job. 
Yeah, because every school is the same. Yeah. So <laughs> every school is the exact same. There's no difference. Uh they recruit the same exact guys. Like Yeah, and you know, coming full circle. Uh I think all this talk about like hyping up the Ohio State coaching staff is a perfect transition back to what we were originally talking about. So Notre Dame wants to be Ohio State, right? Like yes. everything we've seen. Clearly. So let's just go down the list real quick. So they hired James Laurinaitis. Hold on, hold on. I'm sorry. I did have to say this. Notre Dame wants to be Ohio State, largely because of Marcus Freeman. But Marcus Freeman stated he went to Notre Dame. He stayed at Notre Dame because he didn't want to make the same mistake twice. But you're bringing Ohio State to Notre Dame. So was it a mistake? Yeah, why would you want to emulate a mistake? You know, I don't know. Well, I just wanted I, to throw that out there. Let's, so, let's go down the list. Let's, <laughs> like, start, let's just... go down the list, and then we'll, we'll circle back to that. But Notre Dame <laughs> wants to be Ohio State bad. They hired James Laurinaitis. Uh, we don't know what his job's technically going to be yet. I, I don't think they've but announced it. looks it. like linebacker's coach because they haven't hired a linebacker's coach. So that sounds like he's going to be a linebacker's coach. And I, I don't want to be a guy who – because, once again, Brian Hartline got his first opportunity coaching at Ohio State. So James Laurinaitis could have similar success. But a lot more That's stories happen like that that aren't Brian, successful. Brian Hartline was an analyst for like two years making scrub money compared to everyone else on the staff. And he only got the job when that dude decided to beat his wife and Urban decided to cover it up. Like Brian Hartline was not just handed a job. Yeah. We have to separate the difference of that. He was making it's big money to us, but he was making 200 grand on that staff, which is like pennies compared to what everyone else makes as a, yeah. as an analyst. And he was only making that out of respect because Parker Fleming was making like 70 before yeah. he, he became special teams coordinator. So it's a and, little different. Yeah, but still, like, first-time coach, he played in the NFL. He's got experience. He's obviously knowledgeable in the sport. He's been around it, covering the sport at, at Big Ten Network and on 97 won the fan. Uh, the next thing they did was they came after Brian Hartline. Brian Hartline proceeded to get a new title and a raise. And then a few days later, Ohio State and Al Washington parted ways. Uh, Marcus Freeman went and hired someone else he had coached with before in Al Washington. So they went for the receivers coach. Uh, They hired James Laurinaitis. They hired Al Washington to coach their defensive line. Uh, He kept Tommy Reese. And I like Tommy Reese. I'm not going to throw any shade towards Tommy Reese. I think he does a good job. Uh, But you kept your friend. Uh, The rest of their staff, I think Mike Elston's a good hire. I think they – it's not a bad staff on paper. But – I think the I'm, thing I'm we need to establish that, that you can't do what Ohio State does at Notre Dame because you follow a different set of rules at Notre Dame. So by trying to replicate it, you're already setting yourself up for failure. And not only that, you can't just hire your friends. Like, I don't know what the position title is. I don't remember. But he ta- he's taken – actually, it was cornerbacks. Um Cincinnati had two cornerbacks coaches. We got one of them. The other one went to went to Notre Dame. I don't know his name, but he went to Notre Dame. He was the younger one of the two. Like all he's done is hire his friends. And I and I, I was like, oh, Al Washington's not one of his friends until you told me that they coached together for a year, and Al Washington coached under him at Cincinnati. So Al Washington's one of his friends. Like everyone on the staff except Mike Elston. I don't know where he came from. As far as like, I don't know how he knows him. Um, 
Yeah, everyone was except him. Yeah, and like you know, you go down the names. I, I don't think it's bad, but we saw Urban's failure start when he started hiring his friends. We saw what happened to Ohio State's defense when Ryan Day kept it close to the vest. Like, there's just I think it's bad. Yeah, I'll I, put it out there. It's just it's one of those things that rarely works out. And and I think the important thing, at least for me, because I'm not going to speak for anyone else, if it didn't work out for Urban Meyer, who at that point had two championships and was a certified um, Hall of Famer, what makes you think it's going to work out for a first-time head coach? And and the thing that I struggle with, because maybe it does work out, but the thing that I personally struggle with is, like, am I being too old school? Like, am I, like... Saying being one of those guys that's like, oh, it's not going to work because his staff's too young or whatever. But it's just like I genuinely feel like you need to have a couple of mentors on staff, especially as a first time head coach like Ryan Day did that with. Uh, well, first of all, he had Larry Johnson, but he also did that with the the guy from Michigan. I'm Greg Madison. Yep. Greg Madison. And I, that, I think that helped him by having those people with head coaching experience, older those mentors. And you could say that. Uh, he has Harry Heinstead, I think is his name, but there's no disrespect to Harry. And I could be way, way, way off because I know he's well-respected, but offensive line coaches aren't typically put in that position. Uh, so that could have been more of like, a, he was good at Notre Dame and less of a mentorship kind of thing, because like Harry has been an offensive line coach his entire career from what I understand. And I'm, I'm, I'm not saying he's not a good mentor. I'm just saying that's the only really older guy on the staff. Everyone else is like 29, 31, 32. Like, I just don't think that that's a smart way to hire a staff. And then they're all your friends. Like, literally, they probably had a group chat together. They were like, oh, whichever one gets a head coaching job first, we're all like, let's let's hire each other. Yeah, and that it's just not at the high level of Division One. we've seen that that's – that's just not a recipe for success. Like you could have one friend, you might be able to have two friends on staff, but after that, and obviously over time, those relationships build, but like initially it's, it's a business. It is about winning. It's about manufacturing success. And it's hard because Marcus Freeman was Tommy Reese's equal less than a month ago or a month ago, probably at this point, like it changes and it's something we talked about on our last show with the new coaching jobs and all that stuff. There's an obvious pecking order. And now that pecking order's changed. And Tommy Reese's voice is different because Tommy Reese was once at the same level as Marcus Freeman. Now Marcus Freeman's the head coach. A lot of players are going to see Tommy Reese and still think of him as Marcus Freeman's level. And I, I think one thing that is interesting about the staff they put together is – when you're friends with someone, it's a lot harder to have those tougher conversations. It's a lot harder to get on someone for their shortcomings because it's hard to do that. It's harder to do that with someone. I, I, it's like I'm, I'm kind of struggling here, but like it's hard to do that with a friend. Yeah, no, I know exactly what you're saying. It's hard to do that with a friend and it's hard to do that with someone who was on the same level as you, who went through the same things as you, who knows how you act. Like, think about it, right? 
um, when you are friends with someone, you're on the same level, you probably go out and get a drink, right? You may do some other stuff. You may like go to bars, go to clubs. Uh, I mean, head, at a coach at Notre Dame, you may not have time for that, but you may sit and play video games and complain about the head coach and all the things that you don't like and all the things that you would change. Like you just build a certain kind of relationship, a certain kind of dynamic that you don't get with the boss. Uh, and so when you're used to that and you see, you know, Marcus Freeman in this instance at his best, but also at his worst and you hear what he thinks and and different stuff like that that can be hard to like come like to now like not be friends and not be able to talk to him a certain way and stuff like that but then also you could have a standard for him because like he said that when he was head coach if he ever became head coach he would do this or he would do that or he would make this changes or it would be so different and then if it's not different now you feel some kind of way like there are so many angles that you can go when it comes to, you know, a friend being a, a promoted above you. Um, and honestly, not many of them are positive. Yeah, which is, why in most, which is why in most industries, if you have any sort of relation and granted, they're not family, but which is why in most industries, if you have any sort of relation, you can't be supervised. You can't be supervised by a significant other, a parent, things like that. And again, I understand they're just friends, but there's a reason why those kind of close formal relationships have rules that you can't typically work underneath each other. Yeah. And it's one of those things. It's not, it's not really like, uh, it's not an issue until it becomes an issue. You know, like they could obviously have the respect and all that stuff. And Marcus Freeman could become the the big boss man. And Tommy Reese, uh, definitely, I don't think Tommy Reese is going to be disrespectful to Marcus Freeman by any means, but like, it's just, it's different. And that's something that needs to be taken in consideration. Cause at the end of the day, a football coaching staff is built on relationships. It's built on trust. And that is something that could shift real quick. If things don't go well immediately. And, you know, at some point, if Tommy Reese's offense starts sucking, Marcus Freeman might have to fire him. And that's not easy to do. And as we've seen (laughs) historically with coaches who have hired their friends, uh, Bill Davis, uh, it's not always easy to fire your friend. I mean, look at Iowa right now. Everyone on that staff is everyone on that staff is his friend or related to him, and he doesn't want to fire any of them. And they all need fires. And they all need fires. So that's that's what it is. And that's why bringing in your friends. That's why bringing in James Laurinaitis. It's it's something. But you're really putting a lot on the shoulders of a first time coach in Laurinaitis. You're really putting a an interesting twist on your dynamic with Tommy Reese. You're putting all these things in line. And that's why I think when you try to replicate something, it usually ends up failing because yeah, it's hard to reproduce the success. Like that's why when I see people say like Ohio State needs to be more like Bama. No, it's like Bama wins that way. That might not be how Ohio State does it. You know, it's just it's just not the way it works. Well, look at all of Nick. Well, two examples, two perfect examples. Look at all of Nick Saban's assistants and look at all of Bill Belichick's assistants. Almost none of Bill Belichick's assistants who are head coaches are of any sort of successful. They almost all failed. Joe Judge failed. The old guy who was uh, in, in the Giants, uh, not the Giants, uh, that was Joe Judge. The, the uh, Matt Patricia. Um, Matt Patricia Ford failed. Lions failed. Eric Mangini failed. Eric Mangini failed. But Brian Flores didn't fail. He was also one of the ones who kind of 
made he his just, own identity a little bit, yeah, but he still rubbed people the wrong way, and he got fired. Uh, they don't. Josh work. McDaniels is in that boat as well, where he's like a yeah. good coach, but he's just not Bill Belichick, and you realize that yeah. very fast. Yep, and then you look at Nick Saban's assistants. Some of them have more success. I don't, I don't know why, but they can't beat him, and none of them can replicate. What, like no one can replicate what he's doing. Even the ones who have success. I mean, Kirby Smart is clearly the best of his assistants. He hasn't been able to replicate Jimbo Fisher. Is, is Jimbo Fisher is yeah, Jimbo yeah, Fisher's he was, on that. Yeah. He he had a national championship at Florida State, but he doesn't replicate what Saban does because you can't. You have to yeah, make your own way. In Jimbo's to in their respect, Jimbo did it his way. Kirby Smart had to start doing it his way, and they ended up winning. They changed some things yeah. that weren't working when they were trying to be copycats, and eventually it worked out. Yep. So and it's just it's just. We're not here. We're, we are here to trash talk Notre Dame a little bit because they are, they were getting a little high on their horses. But now, uh, I think after me and Jordan just discussed it, I, I just don't think it's a recipe for success. I don't think come whatever the date is. I think it's like nine two twenty twenty two. It's not going to end well for Notre Dame. And I'm calling this shot right now, January twentieth. Like I think this is going to be a blowout. Yeah, and I, I will say this because people, if if they have some success, people are going to immediately look at us and everyone else and say that we're wrong. I think Notre Dame may be good next year. I think they may win ten or eleven games. I think it's the year after that that's the problem. I the year after that, I think that Notre Dame may because there's momentum. Everyone loves Marcus Freeman. All these young guys, whatever. He was there I for him in the end. He's a players' yeah. coach. But then that second year, when you got to learn from your mistakes and you got to see if some of your hires were bad, that third year. I mean, this was Ryan Day's third year, and it was his worst year. His first two years, he was riding high, two back-to-back playoff appearances. He goes to the national championship. Then it's like, okay, I need to evaluate the staff. I'm not the new guy no more. I can't just – in his case, I can't replicate what Urban did. And in Marcus Freeman's case, I can't just do the opposite of what the old coach did because he's probably going to do nothing that he did. Like, you have to make your own identity. By that third year, that's when it's going to be like, okay, what's up Brian Kelly is a hard ass on everybody, but it worked over time. And he had to lighten up. Brian Kelly had to change his ways to be successful. Uh, Vargas Freeman being a player's coach. Yes, I understand every player's coach is like, well, I can still be tough on players. But can you grind the players? Can you do the stuff needed to get the most out of them when you're getting punched in the mouth over and over again? That's something that's hard to do when you're not the head coach, when you've never done that before. So it's something to do. It's something that's hard to do when you are like, some troll got mad at me, but I wrote that in my big thoughts article. It's easy to be the guy that everyone loves when you're winning, but look at Tom Allen. That level, that love each other, that didn't do anything this year no, when it, they went two and ten. And it's great when you're know, winning. I won't speak for his players, but I know me, and I'm I'm, I'm guessing you feel the same. When you're losing and you're getting your butts kicked and you're 0-9 in the Big Ten, you don't want nobody saying, oh, I love you, I'm proud of you, it's going to be okay. No, like we just we just got our asses kicked by everyone. We lost to freaking everyone. The only teams we beat are the schools that we paid for wins. We're 2-10, and 10, um, and so it's like what what is that staff – what is Marcus Freeman going to do when there's adversity? Because none of them have faced the kind of adversity that they're going to have to face in the level of their position that they have now. And there's no one there to mentor them through it. And that, I think, 
is where it could fall apart. Yeah, and that's every coaching staff. That's especially true with young coaches. So if you're hearing this about Notre Dame, you could hear this about any young coach. This is just kind of – this is one of those things. It's what we talked about with Ryan Day last week. Like he had to make these changes. He had to be tough. What was the thing you said on your first show? We're going to find out a lot about Ryan Day in the next couple of weeks as a young head coach. And we did. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's just what – that is part of the process with a young coaching hire. And it's the same exact thing. Ryan Day didn't get to fail at Kent State. He didn't. He got to fail at Ohio State, and that is a totally different level. Marcus Freeman isn't going to get to fail at Kent State. He doesn't get to fail at Akron or Bowling Green or Louisiana Tech or Western Kentucky. He's going to fail at Notre Dame, and he's going to fail at Notre Dame that's used to going 11-1 and and 12-0 and after this recent stint with Brian Kelly, this Notre Dame who expects to be in the playoffs. Like, his, he's taking over – at the highest expectations of a program. And honestly, just the numbers, like this isn't this may sound stupid, but uh Lincoln Riley was in the same position. He was successful. Uh Ryan Day was in the same position. He was successful. I've are we gonna go three for three? I'm I'm not so sure we're going three for three. Somebody has to not be successful. And maybe it's not maybe it's not Marcus Freeman, but I just don't but again Lincoln Riley had Bob Stoops. Like Lincoln Riley didn't go out and hire all his friends. So until he went to USC, because yeah, and he brought all his friends and he's bringing all yeah. his players. Who well, apparently Nick Benito said you guys didn't even like these coaches last year. You're all falling to USC. That's hilarious. That's a great That's start. Funny. That's a great start. But yeah, no, I, I think it's just interesting. You know, I think. In these day and ages, the Blue Bloods are definitely sort of leaning into the young coaching hires. And I just thought it was extremely interesting how much Marcus Freeman hated on Ohio State and then went in and tried to get everybody from Ohio State. Yeah. So, it's just something. It's something to watch about. I think it's going to add some spice to the next two years because Notre Dame's on the schedule. And I just think it's something. I, I thought it was a fun conversation. I think everyone likes to talk about Notre Dame here. And I know we don't always we don't always uh, say nice things, so I'm I'm interested to watch it. It's always fun to see these big schools under new coaches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's definitely it is definitely going to be interesting. That is for sure. Um, it's like, man, I want him, I want him to do well. The the thing that the last thing I have to say on Marcus Freeman before we move on though is Marcus Freeman had a had a very real opportunity here where he could have been the next um Luke Fickle. So like in, in five, ten years, right? If Ryan Day retires or goes to the league and they start looking at coaches, the first person they're looking at is Luke Fickle. If Marcus Freeman was successful and didn't try to seem like seemingly burn every bridge, if Luke Fickle turned it down, Who's the next guy they're looking at? Marcus Freeman. And I don't care what you say when you're getting paid. Notre Dame is not a bigger job than Ohio State. Yeah. I don't care what you say. So I think he would take that job. Yeah, I agree. But I, is it going to be offered now? Like if he I don't think it's going to be offered now. All the things that he's done, all the things that he said, like, is it going to be? And he's younger. So, like, he could have potentially been in the position to get the job after Luke Fickle. Like, I don't know that people are going to be thinking so fondly of him. Even if he's successful, like if like let's say uh, he gets fired and goes to be a DC somewhere else, and he's back successful as a DC, and Jim Knowles goes and gets a head coaching job, 
realistically, Marcus Freeman should be in the pipeline to be that DC to, to recover his career, to have it spend another two, three, four years before he gets another head coaching opportunity. I don't know if he's going to be in that pipeline. Yeah. I don't know if he's going to be looked favorable. And that's why you don't burn bridges. Like you can be excited to coach at Notre Dame without taking shots at Ohio State or Absolutely. like trying to do all these things. And it's just like, I don't remember who said it. Someone tweeted it or someone said it in our group chat, but it, it's like he's trying to make it personal. And it's yeah, like, it, it, it doesn't have to, need be, to personal. be personal. It's like they're geographical rivals in recruiting, and that's about it. That's the only real connection they have. And the, that and the last coach there was Catholic, and yeah. people thought he might want to coach at Notre Dame if given the opportunity. Like, So, yeah, it's not really – it's kind of crazy. But at the end of the day, what can you do? It's personal now. So, uh, in other news, Zach Harrison announced his return earlier in the week. Uh, we've, we've said our piece pretty much on this, but I think it's interesting. Uh, hearing some developments, I, I like, once again – friend of the show, Bill Landis, uh, said he spoke with Zach Harrison, who told him he was playing at 275 pounds last year. That's that's like okay. the size of most three techniques, honestly. And he was playing defensive end, and he was still pretty athletic. But I think it's going to be interesting. Uh, I think this return is interesting for two reasons. Number one is positional versatility. And number two, Knowles talked to him before – he made any decisions about the draft. Jim Knowles, a new defense coordinator. And Harrison made the decision after that discussion to come back. So I, I think we've seen historically Zach Harrison has the ability to overmatch some lesser tackles. Once he plays good tackles, he doesn't really have the pass rush arsenal or power to really do the damage that some of our past defensive ends have been able to do. So I just don't think he has the juice to be a full-time traditional defensive end. But now it seems like he's a little too big to move to that Leo position, so he'd probably have to cut some weight if he's going to play there. But he's too small to move inside. So uh, it's just interesting because he brings a lot of versatility, but I just don't – I just it's I'm having trouble seeing his exact fit at this point in time. Yeah, and that's kind of what I was trying to say before when I was like, I don't necessarily want him to come back. Uh, we did, I did realize that he's a little bit younger than I thought he was. I thought he was a fifth year guy. This is only his fourth year, so it's like. God forbid, like, you know, it's not as bad as I thought where it's like, if you're not gone in three, four years, like you're not that good. Well, this is his fourth year. He just has happened to have a, he just happened to play a little bit more his freshman year than most. So this could, so, you know, his timeline's not as messed up as I thought it was. Um, But I've, I have come to terms with Zach Harrison, and he is a poor man's Jadavian Clowney. Jadavian Clowney is not a good pass rusher. Like, I'm not sure he's ever had 10 sacks in the league. Um, and he came in, and everyone thought he was this good pass rusher, and he is a supercharged run defender. Like, and Zach Harrison is a very, very good run defender. And in the NFL, most traditional teams, at least, have a stud pass rusher on one side and a stud run blocker on the other who can clean up sacks and stuff like that. I, I think Zach Harrison could be a four or five sack a year guy, uh, which is essentially what he's at Ohio State with a bunch of run stuffs. Uh, that being said, I just don't know how he necessarily benefits Ohio State next year largely because I'm afraid that he's going to take snaps from the people that really need it. Um, 
for our third or fourth mention of Bill Landis today. Him and Ari Wasserman on their podcast were talking about it. And um, JT played almost over 100 more snaps than Jack Sawyer. And for whatever reason, that doesn't matter. But is Jack Sawyer going to get those snaps if Zach Harrison's back? Like, that's the thing that concerns me. Like, I don't want them to do the thing that a lot of programs do where they just play the senior because people voted him a captain or because he's popular or because he's the older guy. And I would love to see our bookends be JT and Jack Sawyer stepping into their right, getting some young guys in rotation and letting them have two full seasons as a starter to really like get some real pass rush. And they're they're perfect complements of each other. So I it's not that I've never wanted him, didn't want him back. I don't think he's a good player. I'm just afraid he's going to get 300, 400 snaps and Jack Sawyer is going to get 200 again or 150 again. And it's going to stunt the growth of guys who really need to play. Yeah, and I think an interesting dynamic to this is there's only one traditional defensive end in Jim Knowles' current scheme that he's bringing over. So I don't know how he's going to use the personnel differently. I don't know if he's going to have four defense alignment packages, you know, have the Leo package, have it have multiple yeah. sets in different packages. But You know what's going to be interesting? If we spend this whole offseason talking about Leo, and that's the one thing he doesn't bring over. He just like does Ryan a 4 2 five. Yeah, like Ryan Day was like, listen, you can bring everything but the Leo. Like, we have Larry Johnson, and Larry Johnson doesn't want that shit. So we're going to have four hand, like, hand in the ground, do as many stunts as you want, but we're not going to have a Leo. Which, honestly... Knowles and- could just use the Leo to get, like, one of his best players in better positions. So he might not right. even need it in a lot of cases at Ohio State because you've got more talented defensive ends who can do more yeah. stuff. It'll be interesting. And I think one of us, or maybe both of us, we've done a couple articles to, together to look at this. Did Nose have a Leo at Duke? Did no, like, yeah. If he had it at that, Duke, if he had it at Cornell, it'll be interesting to like, see. Then it's like, okay, this is him. He's probably bringing it. I think I'm gonna. We should look into that. Yeah, how far does Matt Lowe's football go back? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, but yeah, it's it's just interesting. I'm excited to have Zach Harrison back. I think, I think from a player standpoint, you know, watching that. Rose Bowl recap, he had a very vocal voice in the locker room. He brings back a lot of intangible stuff. And seeing him in the in the game kind of in that weird hybrid role that they had him doing where he was lining up in the middle, moving him around to get matchups and all that stuff, I thought he did a phenomenal job. So I'm excited to see what they do with his athletic level and athletic yeah. ability. Uh, one quick thing. I'm glad that they uh, fired the people who were giving us those bad videos and then hired more people. And if you don't pay attention, Ohio State like cycled through video people like very, very quickly because all of their good people were getting other jobs and not being assistants no more. And there was like a stretch of like six months where like the videos were like, eh. And then like a couple of new people got hired and the videos are fire again. So if you didn't pay attention to that, you have no idea what I was talking about. But like I just kept seeing people like leaving and new people getting hired and people getting fired i'm like i don't like these videos and then that video dropped and like the rose bowl video dropped and like a couple others and then like they did the really cool like player things where it was like the the white and like gray but it was kind of like really like futuristic looking and i was like yep they got some new people back there so shout out to them getting the marketing back because those first couple of videos at this season were boring (laughs) it was like is this the same like ohio state like i like this doesn't make me want to run through a wall. Like, 
For sure. And before before we head into the break, I, I just want to say I probably rewatched the Rose Bowl recap like three times, but specifically the part where CJ Stroud threw the game winning touchdown oh or the game tying touchdown. Was, yes, the way they was, edited the video there and it was, slowed down and you hear you hear like the heartbeat. Yeah. Like, and then you hear the crowd noise when he catches it. That was so yeah. that was incredible video editing. I, I felt like and it was crazy how like for that six minute video, it felt like I was I felt all the up and downs from the game again. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the uh yeah, I really did. And that's why that's what made me real like want to say it on here because you had mentioned it. This is definitely the new video stuff. Like 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 think about it. The videos we got game one and two, this is not the same people who made that video. Yeah. Uh it's just they, not. So. They put out a bad signal to all the students making video content. They're like, let's let's get some of you some more of you guys in there. We need some help. Yeah. Cause like over the summer they lost a lot of people because they were all getting director jobs. Yeah. Like all of the assistants and associates and stuff were getting director jobs to run everyone else's and they had to get they had to go deep into the well. So and especially when the turnover happens. So when it comes to like content creation like that, a lot of that work's done before the season even starts. And then they just kind of yeah. clip it together as the season gets here. So you lose all that staff in March, April, and you don't refill it till September. You're playing catch up almost the entire season. So it's it was a it was a tough it was a tough situation. I mean, this is like we're going into the deep tracks here with some of the stuff we're talking about. We're talking about the video <laughs> staff at Ohio State. You won't get that on any other podcast. I, I promise you that. Uh, but yeah, I think before we get into the next two topics, the next two big topics, uh, let's get let's take a quick little break before I forget, as I do sometimes, and let's let's let the advertisements take it from here. All right, welcome back, everybody. This is your host, Christopher Rennie. This has been an incredible episode of the off-season buck-off, the randomness, the back-and-forth, the tangents we've gone on. Uh, we hate it on Notre Dame. It's going to be interesting to watch them. We talked about the video staff. Zach Harrison's return. I don't think it's monumental, but I think it's going to be a nice, interesting additional piece to next year's Ohio State team. Yeah. one Jones returning is monumental. I think that is because uh, they there's just – there's no options outside of Dewan Jones and Paris Johnson Jr. next year. Shout out to Greg yeah. Sudera for that. Yeah, shout out. Welcome, Justin Fry. Uh, refill that cupboard. I was like waiting. I'm waiting for like uh, – I'm waiting for UCLA starting it, offensive tackle to hit the portal. Yeah, right. It's going to be funny when uh, Justin Fry lands like a five-star out of state offensive tackle next year and everyone's going to be like, oh, yeah, but Stud was trying. Uh, and he's Justin Fry comes in and just cleans up. And if he doesn't like, you know, it's it's not always easy, but it shouldn't be it should be the expectation, but it's probably the reality of getting those players is a lot harder than I think we want to admit. Yeah, I think the expectation if, if we're being real, get every five star offensive lineman in Ohio. Yeah. Like that's a guarantee. Cause that just doesn't happen that often because there's only 30, 35 five stars. And get a a I'll say I won't even say five star. I will say a top fifty offensive lineman once every two or three years. To where like every like by the time they start playing, there's always multiple on the roster. Yeah, like every year would be great. That's not always realistic. You can't do that at every single position unless you're Alabama. But like there should never be a point where you don't have one. Like. It's like you yeah. have kids. People say they want to have kids every two to three years, and then they want to be finished. Like, there needs to be a top 50. Either he's a five-star or, like, like 
he's he's the only reason he's not a the only reason he's not a five star is because people still let ESPN do ratings. Like it needs yeah, to be something right. like we can't well, be yeah. getting like our highest tackles one sixty five. And the Dewan Jones returns huge. Zach Harrison's returns big. I think the roster is taking shape. So I'm glad we did the the depth chart projections, and I'm glad we included Dewan Jones in it. I think my prediction was right on the money there. If I keep you him there. And Zach Harrison, I was—I I think I was right about both of them. So, so that's that's good. That's good. So go listen to the last podcast, listen to our depth chart projections, then come back and listen to this one again. Uh, but yeah, overall, I think this is this is the time to do it. I think that all the all the coaching staff is finalized. We know every single coach that's going to be coaching Ohio State from now until next season and possibly the season after that. And I want to go down the list and talk about the titles. And this is going to be a conversation for me and you to kind of collect these titles, try to put them in the memory bank. And there's so many titles now that I don't know if we'll be able to, but some of them are funny, so it's going to make it easier. But we're also going to try our best to explain what each title means and why a certain person was going to give that, was given a certain title. And also – the reason they actually got the title. So um, we're going to start Jim Knowles easy defense coordinator needed a new defense coordinator um, CEO of the defense and he's coaching his linebackers. So yeah. Yeah. Does, is, is he actually have linebacker in his title? Yeah. He's got linebacker. So it's officially, it was updated because originally it was like when they announced him, it didn't say linebackers. Yeah. So defensive coordinator, linebackers coach. So, He'll be hands-on with the position group. that One of the position groups that struggled last year. I mean, the whole defense struggled. That's why there's a whole new defensive staff. Who are we, who are we kidding here? So, easy one. Defense coordinator coordinates the defense. Linebackers coach coaches the linebackers. Easy. So, the next one on the list, Perry Eliano, the only one title coach on the staff. He's coaching the safeties. So, Perry Eliano uh, – you know, we've had Matt Barnes and Kerry Coombs. They were safeties and DBs coaches. Uh, it's it's pretty common to separate those two. They're two different positions, and especially in Jim Knowles' defense, they do do way different things, the safeties and the corners. It, it's one of those things. So we'll go to Tim Walton next because he also is a defensive backs coach. He has the coach, secondary coach title and corners coach. And he's paid $700,000 to Perry Eliano's $400,000. So, Jordan, you've worked on a staff before. Tell me, what, what what's it, why why they have to give Tim Walton the secondary coaching title? So, the first thing I'm going to say is anyone who doesn't work for a college, who works in, like, a normal business, you may not understand all the titles. I will tell you this. Colleges are all about titles and, like, the titles like colleges give they slot money based on titles like you want to be a coordinator not a program coordinator you want to be a specialist but you want to be specialist for not specialist two it's really stupid like literally like 
if you want to like like I had this problem at my job where we needed to be salaried and we weren't and we couldn't be salaried because they didn't want to change our title. Like they couldn't just make us salaried in our title because our title isn't salaried, but they didn't want to move us up either. It was just really stupid. But but to answer. So that's why I think the titles matter, because even though it's football, it's still higher education. And I think you need those titles to, to pay people the way you want to, pay, to. You have raises. Yep. But to, to answer your actual question. The reason why I think they gave him that title is one. I think it's kind of a respect thing. Former Buckeye, uh, seventeen. Uh, he played in the NFL. He, I think he. I think I saw he had like fourteen years coaching in college, eleven years coaching pro. But I think the secondary coach thing is um, kind of making like Eliano his. Assistant, if that makes sense, yeah. In a way, so, it's like so if you don't have I a safety, yeah, like if you don't have a safeties coach, it's just a secondaries coach or a DBs yeah. coach. But because they have a specific safeties coach, which I've been calling for, so shout out, they gave him like you're the secondaries coach, you make the final decisions, but you also coach cornerbacks, and this guy coaches safeties. And I think that's what it is. So it's like yeah. if you're looking at an org chart, you know, the person that, that it's making the decisions for the secondary it's is going to be Walton. But then Eliano specifically coaches safeties instead of them all being grouped together, which never works and should never happen. If anyone who knows They're a lot so about defense, different. the positions are not the same position. Uh, but, yeah, I think Tim Walton being the secondary coach comes with that experience. He's obviously coached safeties and corners before with that 25 years of experience coaching defensive backs in defenses. Uh, he's also had defensive coordinator experience in the NFL, yep. so there's that too. So I think I think he's going to be – I think he's, he's definitely – I think a lot of people are questioning who's going to be more valuable. It, Tim Walton's more valuable if we're – be nice. I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that. I, I think. Only, I think the title only because. Of, oh, 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 yeah. Titles, yes. Titles. Yeah. Tim Walton's more valuable. I thought you meant who was actually going to be more valuable, just in general. And I think that's going to be Eliano because of recruiting. I yeah. think he's going to be a stud. I think that's a different conversation, but I think Tim yeah, Walton, due to titles, is more valuable paycheck wise. And I think the secondary's title, like you said, he's making the final decisions. Yeah, like Tim Walton was Brian is Brian like Eliano is Brian Hartline before he got his promotion. Yeah, he's just a coach on the staff. Like he's he's a step above Parker Fleming. You give him a little bit more respect, but like he doesn't really have any power or say so. Yeah. Like he is so I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but he's like a cog in the machine. Like he's not yeah. making the decisions. So Tim Walton reports to Jim Knowles. Perry Eliano reports to Tim Walton and Jim Knowles. In a sense, yeah. In a sense. And that's really not how it works. Like, but, yeah, everyone that's... reports to the defense coordinator, and the defense coordinator reports to that coach. But on paper, that's how it works. Yeah. And then now we've got Larry Johnson, and he's the defensive line coach and associate head coach. He was the first associate head coach, and now you've got an associate head coach defense. And we're going to talk about Justin Fry right now just because he's the other associate head coach. So you got the defensive line coach. Is the associate head coach and the offensive line coach, who's also an associate head coach. And like you said, this is for sure salary based. And historically, that if you've got the associate head coach title, that's kind of like you ever watched The Godfather? Yeah. The mob movies. 
those are the consigliaries. Those are the right hand men of the coach. Like those are who he's going to for advice and in questions. And now you've got an older guy and now you've got Justin Fry who he's bringing along and he couldn't make him the offensive coordinator for whatever reason. Uh, be, well, because we have Kevin Wilson who we'll talk about in a little bit, but titles pay. That's how they were able to pay him more than UCLA and get him here. Yeah. But it, it's interesting because now we're going to talk about Tony Alford and then we'll kind of group these three together because I think they're, Situation. Tony Alford got another promotion, so he's running back coach, run game coordinator, and assistant head coach. Did he? Lo- I wonder if he. So I, I. I wonder if he lost the assistant head coach title. Yeah, he still got it. He, he probably didn't. So I, I'm looking at the director. I'm looking at the directory, and it's it's not updated because I don't see any of the new guys. I don't know yeah. where the, the current one is. Regardless, though, I, I would say this because we're talking titles. I think this is a minor change, but I think it matters. Unless they changed it, I'm pretty sure Larry Johnson's title is associate head coach, which I think makes him higher than everyone else still because Justin Fry is Is specifically for offense. Yeah. Like Larry Johnson's doesn't say for defense. He's just the associate associate head coach. coach. And that's why when Ryan Day was out with COVID, Larry Johnson was the head coach on game day. Yeah, and I think that would stay the same. And then I think Justin Fry becomes the associate head coach for offense. So he'd lead the charge on offense. Right. Like, I think he would be the, you know, whatever. If Ryan Day (laughs) was out with COVID, let's say, uh, Justin Fry would be responsible for running the practice for the offensive side. Probably, yes. And then Larry Johnson would run the practice. He would – well, Jim Knowles would. That's where it gets complicated. Yeah, and it would be it would be very well. No, it's not. It's actually not that complicated. So Larry Johnson would be the head coach. He he so run the whole the practice. One, yeah, he's the one. He would run the whole practice. And on game day, if you were to miss a game, he's the one like determining captains, which they don't switch per game. He's calling the timeouts. He's choosing Making to accept the game the decisions. The penalties. Yeah. yeah, he's doing that. And then they would have to make a decision. But I, what I would imagine is Justin Fry would be the guy calling the plays downstairs and Kevin Wilson would stay upstairs instead of bringing Kevin Wilson downstairs. And And the reason I think you'll be calling the plays on defense. And the reason I think you give the associate head coach positions to positional coaches is because the offensive coordinator and defensive coordinators already have an overarching responsibility they're responsible for. It's because you don't trust Kevin Wilson. (laughs) But he's he's still doing the same job on Saturday and you can't take him away from that job. And Larry Johnson could still be a D-line coach and also do the head coaching stuff. Where Jim Bills has to call the defense. I'm just trying to I'm just trying to figure out why they would give this. Because associate head coach, all I saw from it was when I was reading about it, was it's literally just a job that helps organize practice, recruiting strategies, all that stuff. And it's a it's title to give you more money. Yeah, it's it's title to give you more money. And you're the, usually it's given to the right hand men of the head coach. So yeah, yeah. I think um, that's where it gets interesting with Tony Alford because he's the assistant head coach, which is pretty much the assistant to the regional manager. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I think like and that one's for weird. sure for just pay. That's that's a pay bump one assistant yeah. to head coach. 
from from I will I will say this though in a higher education context, really big offices have a director, an associate, and an assistant. Um, and typically, if they do that, they split the staff, which you can't do on a football staff because there's not that many people. Unless, unless, which we didn't think about because no one thinks about it, unless they have supervisory over the analyst and the GAs, which is where these titles could come in, but we would never know. Because Ryan yeah. Day does not supervise the GAs, let's be honest. Yeah, he does, no, he's, he's not. He so, has to supervise the coordinators and the position coaches. Yeah. And the position coaches. <laughs> And he'll put the plan in and what they need, and that's how the coaches yeah. will utilize their quality control so assistants and yeah, and their run game. And we could add those titles at the end just to kind of explain what they do a little bit. Yeah. But yeah, so just we're making this up here, but I do think I will say in a higher education context, really big offices, ones that have staffs of six, seven, eight, nine, ten, whatever, they will have an assist, a director, an associate and an assistant and the associate is higher but the assistant doesn't report to the associate in most cases sometimes they do but they all have staff under them so like like if you look at the org chart like there are people who report to the assistant and there are other people who report to the associate and then the assistant and associate report to the director so it's like a weird org chart but there is technically room especially if they throw in the quality control coaches and stuff like that. But ultimately it's a way for them to tell Ohio state, we want to pay these people more money because Ohio state probably has an assistant coach is slotted this. But if you give them this title, that can give them a boost of another hundred thousand dollars. And if you add this to their role, that could give them a boost of another 50 grand. And that like, it's some, it's BS, essentially. <laughs> yeah, and like you kind of said at the beginning, like the way they use titles in higher education in a way is number one for organization, but number two for BS ways to keep money in different ways. And it's 100%. I'm telling you, like, like if you look at like an org chart of a higher education institution of like regular offices, like student affairs, that kind of stuff, you're going to see – you're going to see uh, associate, office associate. You're going to see specialist. You're going to see program specialist. There's coordinators and then there's program coordinators, which are totally different things. Then there's levels. So there's program coordinator to level three. But at program coordinator level five, you can at, at level five, people can report to you. But at level three, only students can report to you. At level four, you can have GAs. At level two, no one can report to you. It's just like, I don't even know how they like pray if you pray if you don't just think about them think about the hr people because how they manage their job at a higher education institution i have no idea because it's the stupidest thing ever but literally like it, it your specific title determines everything it determines how much you get paid how many vacation days what you can get if you're salaried or not like the at some places it determines the percentage increase of your salary higher education stupid and football coaches are somewhat still under that system even though they make more than like 90 percent of the university <laughs> and have the yeah. best job but they still have to get raises the same way yeah, yeah, they, they don't. It's not all anarchy. <laughs> yeah, because uh, it's still a government institution. So yeah, on top of Tony Alford's assistant head coach role, he's the run game coordinator. 
and the running backs coach. And then Brian Hartline is the wide receiver and passing game coordinator. So that's what I want to talk about. And passing maybe game I coordinator and run game coordinator. So this is where it gets interesting. So I think run game coordinator is going to be an extremely important position going into next year, especially with how Tony Alford and Justin Fryer are able to kind of concoct a little bit of a rejuvenation in the run game. I think that's going to yeah. be important. And it gives Tony Alford. So I, I was, I was kind of curious about this. Um, so I looked into Joe Brady cause he was like the first guy where I saw passing coordinator and he actually had a legitimate role on the day-to-day game operations with how they called plays. Right. Usually it's just a title to give pay bumps. And I think in Brian Hartline's case, this is not throwing shade. I think his was more for a pay bump. If you use it correctly, it's not just for pay bumps. But a lot of people don't because coaches have egos and don't listen to nobody. And I think Tony Alford and Justin Fry, the combination there with his associate head coach of the offense and run game coordinator, their associate head coach is kind of meaningless in this conversation, but he's coming here to bring in some new uh, run game schemes and concepts. Uh, Tony Alford is going to be more responsible on game planning against the specific run games they see next week, which is good because he's already watching film for running backs. But this means he's going to work more in cohesion with Justin Fry, and that's how I see it. Yeah. So the run game – so that it all makes sense in theory. Yes. And Ohio State needs a run game coordinator because Ryan Day – I, like I'm not gonna say he knows nothing about the run. I just don't think he cares. I don't think he, he cares about he's it. He's a much. smart coach, and, and he was at BC when they had like a, a two thousand yard. He called the plays I for think, a two thousand yard rusher. Yeah, I, I think Ryan Day needs a run game coordinator because he just has too much fun <laughs> with the passing game yeah. and is not putting in enough time. So the issue that I have, the thing that confuses me, is. It makes more sense if your coordinators it makes more it makes more sense not to have three. It makes it makes more sense. What I'm trying to say is it doesn't make sense to have an offensive coordinator, a pass game coordinator, and, and a run game coordinator. Like yes. it would make sense for a running game coordinator, totally makes sense. A pass game coordinator totally makes sense. If you wanted to add a title bump, having offensive coordinator and pass game coordinator, I get it. Cool. I just don't know what the three of them do because if you have one person coordinating the run and another person coordinating the pass, what does the offensive coordinator do? Especially at Ohio State where where Ryan Day is a pseudo-offense coordinator. Because if the coordinator called plays, then it's like totally makes sense. Yeah, because you have a guy who comes in each week with run plays. You have a guy who comes in each week with pass plays. You bring it together. The coordinator designs the game plan and then calls plays. I, I get the function. And that's kind of why I brought up Joe Brady because I wanted to bring up Steve Enzinger because he's got more experience in creating the game plan and calling the plays on game day. So you take Joe Brady – who knows the modern passing game and put them with a veteran play caller and game planner. It's a dangerous combination. 
Yeah, and I mean that's exactly what happened because essentially, you the you're the young guys on the staff. You're the smart guys. You're the ones who's on Twitter, social media. You have these connections all over the place. You're watching all the high school film. So when you watch Jackson Smith and Jigba burn people when he's 17 in high school, and you're like, mm, I like that passing concept. We could run that here, like. When you're watching Brandon Ennis doing crazy stuff at IMG and you're like, that's a good point. Like, that's where that comes in. And everyone has responsibility, whether you have a title or not, everyone has responsibilities in the play call, the the, the, um, game, the game planning, unless you're just a really bad, really bad, like, unit. Yeah, because nobody, you know, it, and I, I in my year at Juco, every Sunday, the coaches get together from the fast Saturday players usually yeah. get Sundays off or come in and do a light workout. And then the coaches go in on Sunday and immediately start cutting film and game planning yep. for the next opponent. Well, so at Ohio State, they don't cut film. <laughs> yeah, they don't cut film. They I, have, I they have film. you cut film. That was, that was my job. I in junior film. college, they cut the film. And at Ohio State, they have 20 dudes cutting <laughs> yeah. film. Yeah. I cut film and they they tell me to have it by the time they come into the office, which means I don't get to go home. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, pray for those guys uh, if you're the praying type. But it's 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 one of those things. So they have that ready, and everyone has their part in creating the game plan. But this gives more specific roles and detail on what they're looking for in film. And I mean, Brian Hartline was obviously going to be watching the receivers and what they can attack. Now it just puts more distinction in his role in his voice into the game plan. And Tony Alford's voice is more distinct in what he's providing to the game plan rather than Ryan Day divvying up the different levels of game planning. It's kind of already in the titles. Yeah, it's just, again, their titles, great. Love it. Makes sense. I believe that they can do it. But what does Kevin Wilson do? And we're going to get to that soon. Um, (laughs) And we got Corey Dennis, simple QB coach. I don't think he got a raise. I don't think anything changed for him. I think he's just he's he's just vibing. He loves his job. He's he's living his best life. He gets to coach CJ Stroud. We we already talked about Corey, so I I think we're good to go here. He he does more than everyone thinks. He was a nepotism hire, but I think Every once in a blue moon, a nepotism hire ends up shocking the world and being yeah. great. It's uh, like maybe Ohio State shouldn't have been his first job, but he's actually a good coach. So it worked like, out. And Ryan Day obviously trusts him. Uh, yeah. And that's that's important. And all the quarterbacks love him. So that's really what he's, you need for that position. Yeah. He's, he's, he's doing a good job. All right. So – the last guy uh, that isn't the head coach, Ryan Day, is Kevin Wilson, the offense coordinator and tight end coach. So as we said, there's a run game coordinator, there's a passing game coordinator, and there's an offensive coordinator. And I know usually in that case, the offensive coordinator is responsible for creating the offense, putting it together, putting together the game plans, and how you'd attack it. But Kevin Wilson is not in most situations. And as we said last week, he has the best job on the planet because guess who does all that? And then guess who calls the plays on Saturday? 
Ryan did. <laughs> right. And, so, and if, do you know how we know that he does that? Aside from common sense, we know he does that because when the defense had issues, he literally came into a press conference and said, I don't like that I have to focus on the defense and take my attention away from offensive game planning. If he was just a head coach, it wouldn't matter. He could have spent all the time on the defense. He yeah. literally complained about it, and a bunch of people were like, oh, you're a head coach. Why are you complaining about having to deal with the defense? And, and it's like because he's he, he's not just a head coach. He's the offensive coordinator <laughs> like, yeah. and quarterbacks coach. And, yeah, so he, he calls the plays. So Kevin Wilson is pretty much just living life. And he put it the best he, he gives input. He puts he'll, he gives input. Obviously, he's not just sitting up there doing nothing. But he's really, playing solid there. Yeah, in a game you see you see him on an iPad next to his place. He just moving cards around. And he, right, he's like, "Hey, Kevin, what's our personnel on defense right now?" He's like, "Oh, they got nickel out there." Puts a card down. Uh, he's like, "All right, we're throwing it to Jack Smith and Jigba again." He's like, "Sounds good to me." Uh, obviously, it's a little bit more in depth than that, but uh, pretty much not sure? really. We're, we're not sure. I know he's not playing solitaire, but he might as well be. And it's, it's I, I think I think when he was hired, he was kind of a, a little bit of a mentor to Ryan Day because he was the smart. older coach to like the younger Ryan Day, and, and was I a previous head coach. And I don't think Ryan Day wants turnover in that regard. I don't think he wants to bring in someone else to kind of. Do that role because at first Ryan Day was responsible for rejuvenating the pass game. Kevin Wilson was responsible for rejuvenating the front and the run game. Well, the run game went stale. Uh, the pass game still elite, and Kevin Wilson was very good for that too. Like he ran a very pass-heavy offense with Richard Legal at Indiana, and like they threw the ball fifty times a game. But he also, at times in his past, was really good at creating offense. He was just really good at creating offenses based on personnel because that's what he always had to do. Now you're in Ohio State. You have the personnel. You have exactly what you want to do. You can have an offense based on whatever you want, and Ryan Day builds it. And you just have to make sure it's implemented in practice while Ryan Day's doing the head coaching stuff. Yeah, and I've really been thinking about this, and I think you touched on a good point about turnover. I really wonder if he, Kevin Wilson just has a job because no one wants to be an offensive coordinator under Ryan Day. And I don't, and I don't say that because it's Ryan Day. I say that because he doesn't – like they don't get to call plays. Yeah, like, it, um, it's a big reason Mike Yersick left. Yeah, uh, and, and that's why a lot of people leave these types of situations because they want to call plays, and that's why they leave for quote unquote lateral positions. I, I again yeah, because so, they want to call plays. And Kevin um, Wilson's a little older, so he's not going to go work for a defensive-minded head coach who's kind of on his level. The only thing he's leaving for is yeah. a head coaching job. Honestly, and, and and I think that kind of makes sense in that instance that you don't want the turnover. You have a guy that you trust, a guy that can mentor you, or whatever, um, and you like the you players like, like him. Yeah, and the offense is good enough where you don't need to make those changes. Like, yeah, except for stud, they didn't need to make any changes. So it's like, why you can't fix something that's broken? I guess is what I'm trying to say. But it's just funny, especially when you update the titles, that it's very clear he doesn't do anything. Like, like yeah. it's, it's just like and at now least it's very I, clear that you can't pick what I will exactly. Say, I do think Alfred and Hartline are probably going to look to Wilson for 
a little bit of mentor mentee stuff when it comes to creating these game plans and all that. And he's going to have a big voice in that, but Ryan Day is also going to have a voice in that. So I think what we're going to see here is a lot more. And I think this was something that was brought up. It's just Ryan Day does not have a lot of collaboration on his offense. It's his offense. And I think that's kind of something it'll be interesting to see if these are just in title, which I I have a feeling that's what it really is. But if there's going to, if we see a bunch of different stuff, if we see a more balanced game plan, we're going to know these titles meant something. Yeah. I, I don't think I won't speak on Brian Hartline because Ryan day has an amazing passing offense. And I really don't know how much more you can change that. Uh, even though again, Brian Hartline is a really good coach. I don't think you give Tony Alfred run game coordinator and you bring in Justin Fry, who is literally up, up the running game everywhere. If you weren't going to give them the power to actually make some legitimate changes. And the one thing that I will say is I think Ryan day was really humbled. Um, and so I don't, well, first of all, I've never thought that he ran a dictatorship. I just think he's a very high level coach. So when he brings ideas, they kind of go with them because they're typically good ideas. And his offense has evolved every single year. I mean, especially around the quarterbacks, which is why I don't think it's really just his offense. Because, like, Dwayne Haskins' offense wasn't Justin Fields' offense. And C.J. Stroud's offense was Justin Fields' offense for, like, the first three weeks. And they finally realized it didn't work. And they created an offense around him, and he took off. So, And those are the conversations we don't get to see. Like, we don't know how that comes about. We don't know if Kevin Wilson's saying this stuff to Ryan Day in a meeting, like, hey, this isn't what C.J. does well. Like, we need to switch this up. We don't know that. Or even even Corey Dennis, who sees him all the time. Yeah. So I will say – Passing game coordinator may just be for a raise. I don't think, like, Tony Alfred didn't need a raise. I don't think you, I mean, everyone wants one, but I'm just saying, like, yeah, I don't think you give him that if you are not actually yeah. trying to upgrade the run game. But Tony Alfred being positive. Tony Alfred know. wants to be a head coach one day. And yeah. He's made it clear. He's put his name out there for some jobs. So I think that helps him in the future as well, especially if you see immense improvement in that regard this year. And the run game wasn't even bad. It's just it got stale Mm. and it keeps, you know, like you had a thousand yard rusher. You can't even dream about that. Um, He averaged like six yards a carry. Like it wasn't bad. It's just in short yardage Mm. situations, it pissed us off. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking of, I just want to say this uh, to just, you know, give him his flowers. And until you saw the stat, like when you saw it, it makes sense. Did you realize that Tony Alfred had a thousand yard rusher six out of seven years? No. And and every single one of his running backs have been drafted and all of them except one have been drafted in like I, I'm, I'm weird with numbers but I think all of them except one has been drafted in like the first three rounds I think it was yeah track that, I mean it makes sense at the end of the day it was the only year he didn't have a thousand yard rush or the COVID year Probably. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. <clears throat> I think so. I don't think. Yeah. Trey Sermon didn't hit a thousand yards. Cause that, and I know Master Teague didn't. No offense, Master Teague. Sorry. Catch it straight there. But uh, yeah, I just, it, that was not on him either. Or we would have had another thousand yard back that year. Yeah. So it's like. Yeah. And he almost got there. He got to 870. So if he didn't oh, get hurt oh, against really? Alabama. Uh, 
He might have got yeah. there. Honestly, not even if he didn't get hurt. If, if the game didn't get canceled. Yeah. yeah, if there's like two more games. Yeah, so um, they would have had one. But, yeah, I guess at the end of the day, uh, coaching titles. We just kind of wanted to go through that with you guys, learn a little bit, talk it out a little bit, kind of see what they do, see what they might do, see what they actually do. And I thought it was fun. I think it's fun kind of talking about the coaching staff. I think we get so stuck on players, sometimes we forget to talk about what these coaches do. Yeah. Also, when they're, you know, playing title Olympics, it's it's, it's pretty fun. fun. Uh, but what do these coaching titles title, actually mean? In reality, money. <laughs> yeah. At, so at the end of the day, at the end of the day, it's, it's money. Because uh, all these coaches are doing a lot more jobs than their titles say. And that's just college coaching. Yep. <laughs> just uh, wanted to pay him more. I, God, I don't know what – just looking in the future, uh, I don't know what uh, title they're going to have to give um, Brian Hartline. Because <clears throat> yeah. he's not leaving. Like, he's going to have, like, seven titles I mean, until they just decide to make him offensive coordinator. The next <laughs> like, obvious what? one would be co-OC. Yeah, okay, that's fair. That's or fair. Or could throw him an assistant to the head coach role. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna have three offensive assistants. Like, what's? Uh, yeah, that's that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, the, it's not gonna be Gene Smith. It's gonna be Christina Johnson's gonna walk into Ryan Day's offense, and she's gonna be like, "So you got three assistant to the head coaches. You got four associate head coaches. You got six uh, position coaches. So, what, what do these guys actually do?" Like, and then Ryan Day's gonna flip it on them. He's like, "You've got four associate deans to the school of arts and science. So what do they actually do?" Honestly, so, uh, yeah. so one more jab in higher education. There. <laughs> before we switch, really quick, I don't know if you remember. You wanted to talk about. Uh, we wanted to talk about the analysts and what they do, oh, and, yeah. and I wanted. I wanted to bring this up for one reason in particular because we talked about it. I meant to say it when we uh, talked about Notre Dame. One thing that I like about this staff, and obviously they have to win and recruit for me to fully buy in. One thing I like about this staff is none of these people were friends necessarily. Like Ryan Day didn't just bring in his friends uh, and Jim Knowles didn't just bring in his friends. And I think it's very interesting that no one on Ohio State's defensive staff that has a position coach title worked with or for Jim Knowles. Now, he brought in every analyst he's ever cared about, ever. Yeah. <laughs> like, like he brought in GAs, like, analysts, like yeah. quality there's control gonna assistants. Like, there's going to be like six defensive analysts, which is something we've talked about. Like, why does Ohio State have one defensive analyst? Like, you already talked about not trying and, to be Bama. Like, you don't have to have 20, but like, you, you should have more. Um, and, but I do like that. It's, it's like something, he brought his people in. It's something you brought up is the imbalance in the coaching staff. The one way you can make up for that is analysts. Yeah. And and I don't know all of their – I don't know what they're all going to do, but it looks like there's an analyst for every position. One yeah. of the analysts, uh, Coy McFarland, I believe, was linebackers. The other guy was – he worked with safeties. I think one of the guys was corners or the guy that they brought in from Duke as an analyst. I don't know that they brought in one for defensive line, but they might. Like – I like that they still they found a way to bring in Jim Knowles guys without making it like we just have to make his friends as position coaches. Yeah, and uh, I think we talked about this last week. A huge reason they're doing that is because this is a complicated scheme, and the best way to help these guys out is to give them an assistant that understands it. Yeah, uh, and the last thing that I have to say about this because we did kind of talk about the analyst uh, before we actually explain what an analyst and GA does since we, we said we we're going to do that. 
Ohio State is such a big job <laughs> that the co-DC at Duke is now an analyst. Like, that is some Alabama-type things. Like, we're yeah. not getting former head coaches, and that's fine. I don't know that we need to do that. But we have a co-DC who was like, yeah, I'll come and be an analyst. <laughs> like, yeah, you're going to be making good money. But, like, that, yeah, like taking that responsibility, adding Ohio State to his resume is a big deal. Yeah. So. And I think he got fired, so it's not like he left but his still, DC yeah. job. But it, yeah, still, yeah, that's still, like he could have went and got a DC or a linebackers coach or job or somewhere else. Yeah, and he's like, yeah, I'll go be an analyst at Ohio State because yeah. that is the pool Ohio State has. So yeah, I think we can start. I think analyst is an easy one. Um, they're pretty much extra film watchers and extra game planners. Yeah, and depending, they uh, they're also allowed. To coach and practice. Yeah. The, the, the biggest difference is they're not allowed to coach in games. So they help run the drills, set up the drills. They help, um, like, it's just extra eyes. So, in particular, the analyst who does linebackers, he's Corey Dennis. He's Corey yeah. Dennis without a title. So he's going to be the one, which is why he brought him from Oklahoma State, because that's what he did there. He's going to be the one that runs the meetings, watches the films, runs the uh, the position groups, like when linebacker, linebackers separate, or if they need to do inside and outside linebackers to teach different things, like he's going to be that guy that trusts to really be very hands-on with the linebackers. Um, and the other guys are essentially going to do the same. Like safety is a position. Yep. So when they're, when they're teaching it, we're going to have uh, Eliano and whoever – I think it was the Michael Hunter guy, but whoever it is, it's going to be those two as well as maybe another analyst or a GA or student worker that, that really focuses on that group. Yeah, extra set of eyes on everything. Yeah. Practice, film, in the they meeting run rooms. Scout, they run scout teams. Yep, they run scout they teams. Scout teams know what they're doing. So it's uh, a very – definitely have key job. roles in special teams game planning. Yep. Every single – Analyst helps in that, or not analyst. That's more quality control assistance, which we can move to. Yep. Uh, so, so quality control. Yeah, you go ahead with this one. Oh, that I was gonna. I was gonna send it to you. I don't. Yeah. I think so the, my impression the is pay, control. right? What up? The biggest difference is pay, right? Yeah. Are, so are I, you, I know. Keenan Bailey is not an analyst. Keenan Bailey is a quality control coach, and he does a very similar role to what we were just talking about with analysts. But he, their quality control coaches are very much responsible for the day to day management of like film that you watch, breaking that stuff down, getting the stuff ready for meetings and that stuff, and then helping build the practice schedules and doing all that stuff. They're pretty much the assistant to the position recruit. coach. And yeah, I think the biggest difference uh, because I know I know I saw it. People were saying it. Keenan Bailey talks to recruits because recruits were saying it. Because he he's very heavily involved with Brian Hartline in recruiting. So I'm guessing here, but I think that's the other difference. I think quality control is the next step, and quality control you can do a little bit more. And you're allowed to talk to recruits. Where analysts, I don't think ever talk to recruits, but they help. They a are lot just day to day football people, and they can help in practice. And then GAs do all the same stuff, but they definitely can't talk to recruits, and they're technically not allowed to coach in practice. Everyone does it, but technically GAs 
aren't really supposed to like coach position groups in practice. They're very much lower level assistants. Yeah, they do all the groundwork, right. every single thing you can. Yeah, from- and maybe yeah, and maybe at Ohio State, your GA doesn't help coach because you have analysts and quality control coaches. But at smaller schools, your GAs coach. Yeah, even though they're not supposed to. And they set up like the schedules for recruiting and all that stuff, but they don't talk to the recruits. Yeah, well, they don't even do that at Ohio State. They have a whole recruiting. They have department a whole team for, for yeah, recruiting coordinator yeah. or not recruiting directors. Yeah, once yeah. again, higher Mark, education titles because Mark Pantone has a whole staff. Staff, yeah, of assistants and personnel people. So even that changes at Ohio State. But yeah, graduate assistants, um, they do all the dirty work. Yeah, they're the ones who stay, who don't get to go home. Graduate assistants and interns are the ones that's like the coach comes in at three o'clock in the morning and you need to have the film ready at three o'clock in the morning. When I worked, me and like when I was at Kent State, me and the graduate assistants, like we had to break down the film after each game. And this was in the Mac. So we had matching, which means some games ended at 11. And while all the coaches were eating and the players were showering and stuff, we were in our little office like um, film for next week. Yeah, not even not even so much clipping. Our biggest thing was like we had to input plays. So like if you oh, know yeah. the film, Once you software, get the film. Yeah, if you watch the film, like at the anyone who's seen DVR uh, film or whatever, I think that's what it's called. That's not what it's called. Um at the top, when you run the play, you can put in formations, you can put in yep. play call, you can put in a lot of information. All of that has to be manually typed. And so there's someone in, who sits in the box and who writes down every single play call. And so you have to go through the film and you have to cut out. You either have to cut out penalties, depending on what the coach wants, or you have to say it's a penalty so that when they watch, they know exactly that this eight seconds is 11 formation, power right, it gained six yards. The next play is second. Like, all of that's in there. Yeah. And we had to go through that and do that after every single game before we went home. So that's what GAs do. That, and that GAs sucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's how, you, it's how you cut your teeth in coaching. That's, like, where it starts. And you should yeah. learn a lot doing that. Oh, you do. I mean, you learn so many, like, formations and wrinkles and, and that kind of stuff. And if the coach likes you, sometimes you can, like, help, like, hey, here's a cool little play that I saw that we don't run, that kind of stuff. But it's very, very tedious. It's very hard. And you have to be accurate. Because yeah. if you if you, if you you put second and four and it's first and ten and you miss the play or it's a penalty and they sit down to watch the film and they just had to watch ten seconds of a penalty, they are not happy. <laughs> Trust me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I trust you. <laughs> yeah, and the funny thing is that at, at, in junior college, all the coaches do that. So it's a little yeah. different. And that's the difference. At once you get to the Division One level, they, they have some helpers. Yeah, I've been I've been cussed out multiple times. Yeah. And I was good at my job. <laughs> all right, so do that if you don't want to get cussed out. So we got we got one more real conversation. We just got some quick hitters to close out with final thoughts. Um, so the NFL draft eligible players are pretty much finalized. I think we've got our group. There is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten guys I've got here. We're all draft eligible. Me and Jordan, we're going to go through and predict where they fall. And I know me and Jordan are both NFL fans, but I think we've seen some of these players differently in our times. So and we did this before the season, I believe, with how many players we think are going to be first rounders, second rounders, etc. So it's going to be kind of a little bit of a reboot after the season, a 2.0 in that regard. But 
I tried ordering them in tiers, I'd say, more than like that. But yeah, we'll just get started. We'll get started. So the okay. first player I got on the list, I've got Garrett Wilson, um, projected by almost everybody to be one of the first one or two receivers taken, except Matt Miller. And I just want to say, <laughs> I just want to say, if I if I was more prone to swearing on this show, I'd use the effort. But you know what? Screw that guy. I, I think yeah. I think this. We'll do this. I, I just need to. I just need to burn this here. I need to. I just need to let this one work. Uh, NFL draft evaluators are stupid. Yes. Period. And I. Ooh. Not every single one of them is stupid, but the minute someone goes to Indianapolis, Indiana, and someone runs a four three, everyone's going to be talking about him as the first receiver off the board. And that uh, pisses me off. Jamison Williams. And Jamison Williams and Jamison Williams may go high, but um, he's not a better all around wide receiver than a lot of people. Jamison, and actually, personally, the reason I don't think Jamison Williams is going to go high is because most of the teams that need a wide receiver high. It's not a luxury pick. Like, yeah. Jameson Williams is going to go to, like, the Bills at, like, 30 and just be, like, destroy. he's going to be good. He's going to destroy the league, but he's going to yeah. go at 30 because he, they have they Stephon have, Diggs. Yeah, and they, they just need another secondary weapon. Deep threat. Like, he, he's going to go to the Packers. Like, Aaron Rodgers is going to stay, and he's going to say, I'm only going to stay if you get me another wide receiver. And they're going to pay him with Devontae Adams, and everyone's going to hit. But he does, he's not going to go eight because yeah. eight, you need to be a number one guy. And he's not a number one guy in the NFL. And I just want to take this route. Like, how many guys have we seen run the fastest 40 time at the wide receiver position flame out immediately? Most of them. Most I of mean, them. look at look at John. Is his name John Ross? Look at John the guy Ross. in Cincinnati. I mean, what has he done? Like Nothing. Uh, he's not even on Cincinnati anymore. I don't even think he's in the league. Yeah. Uh, Unfortunately, because he's a Buckeye, look at Devin Smith. I yeah. mean, Devin Smith had one thing that he did. And, I mean, we haven't had um, we haven't had a true only deep threat that survived in the league since Deshaun Jackson. Yeah. And Deshaun Jackson was more of just a, than a deep threat, but like everyone likes to say, "Oh, Tyreek Hill." Tyreek Hill is one of the best route runners in the league. He yeah, just also faster than everybody. He like he's a very he's, complete wide receiver. He's honestly he's like a running back when it comes to his shiftiness and all his like athletic abilities, but he's good at catching the football. Yeah, that. But he's genuinely he a very good route runner. He like, does they what Brian Hart have, says yeah. to do. He creates massive amounts of separation. And it's not just because he's fast, and a lot of people don't get that. Yeah. And it's like, no, he's you play, also <laughs> – You play football on like a five-yard box almost every single play. Yeah. It is how fast you can shift. And that's what – I just want to go on that tangent because I, I'm so tired of draft evaluators looking at a guy like Garrett Wilson who's going to run a 4-5. But he has incredible body control. He creates separation. He does every single thing in the game well. But he's like, oh, but he doesn't have any A-tier traits. It's like, when he's a technician, watch the freaking tape. He bullies everybody. It doesn't matter I mean, if he's only six foot, 185 pounds. There's no one Hunter, who can hold him. Look at Hunter Renfro. Yeah, what Hunter Renfro. What, what traits does he have except he's like yeah. a top – one percent route runner. <laughs> I live on campus. I could go to Fifteenth Street right now and find fifteen dudes who look more athletic than Hunter Renfro. <laughs> but but he's a literally a literal top one percent route runner. So and 
That's what I need to say. So Garrett Wilson's first round pick. He should be the first yeah. receiver taken, if not second or third. Because I, I get it. Like you could get enamored with a Traylon Burks who's like six three, two hundred twenty pounds, built like freaking Josh Gordon. Uh, that's that's you can't. I can't really argue with that. Uh, okay, whatever. Yeah. Like if but, you want to be mad because he's six foot, like okay, that's fine. Yeah, and. You know, some some offenses are a little bit more built for those types of receivers. Yeah, but I mean, when it's in a, the top three, it's a styles fight. It's like a who you prefer kind of thing. It's it's like why people did uh, Devontae Smith over Jamar Chase and like things like that. Like, yeah, and uh, I take Jamar Chase in that any day of the week, and that's yeah. just me personally. Chase, but Chase may have went first, but either way, it's like these are the top one or two guys. Yeah, and who we like better. And the Eagles would have. Preferred Smith. That's what they say now, but you never yeah. know. No. Uh, so the next guy on the list, Chris Olave, and he's went from surefire first round pick to borderline first round pick for similar reasons to Garrett Wilson, which is he's people lying to themselves. Yes. And <laughs> I, I honestly like, and this isn't because I think he's going to be a second round pick, but it's because everyone else in NFL circles is stupid. Like I said, that's why I led with that. He's probably going to go in the front side of the second round. And it's no. going to be great for him. There's no way. Chris Olave is going first round. I, I don't think – here's the thing. I know what people are saying. They're all wrong. He's also going to kill interviews. He's going to and, – and what's going to, what's really going to happen is he's going to go to the freaking Patriots or something. Yeah, like he's it, a star. It may, late, it may be late first, but he's – one of these good drafting teams who never has a high pick is going to get a steal out of yeah. him. I or, think you're going to have him drafted in that – 28th pick range to like the 38th pick range and yeah. someone's going to get an absolute steal because evaluators have, got enamored with physical attributes all i have to say is this if he does not go in the first round he's going to the bears justin fields is going to get his guy because the bears i don't know what pick they have but it's got to be top five in the second round because they suck this year and if it's not they'll trade up i i think i think he goes to the i think he goes to the and bears you get justin fields his favorite receiver yeah i wonder what pick they have because i know they don't have a first round pick so i don't even know what pick is actually theirs yeah so it, it's uh, just interesting i i think i think the nfl is going to talk themselves of out of a lobby in the first round, and I think it's going to be incredibly stupid. Yeah, I disagree, but I understand your logic to it because the NFL sucks at drafting. And there's a reason so many teams suck for so long. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> next on the list, I've, I've got Jeremy Rucker. Um, I, I don't know where he's going to get drafted. His, I have him I, I, late third round. That's Okay, third round. That's where I was. I, I'm in that – like if I was doing an NFL draft website article, I'd probably have them three to five mid round pick day three or whatever, or day two or whatever day three. That would be day three. Um, yeah, I think I think he's going to be one of those guys that they're going to look at and say how they used him wrong, and he's going to get drafted a lot higher. Than I, people I honestly like. think he didn't get used like a Darren Waller or like a. You know, one of the more athletic tight ends in the league, but I think he got used like an NFL tight end. Yeah, and I mean, like, um, the Colts would be a perfect place for him. Like, he's going to go to yeah. one of those, like, the Eagles would take him, the Colts would take him. Um, I don't he's, think the 49ers need a second tight end. The tight, like, he, I right think he's, now gonna, he's a definitive, very solid second tight end on your team. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm yeah. not sure he's fully ready to be a number one NFL tight end, but when you bring in that H back second tight end, which a lot of NFL teams love to run 12 personnel to get those two big bodies in there, he's going to be perfect. So I, I think mid round is a great, it all depends on how he tests too, because like he has flashed, he has great ability to catch the football, but if he's slow, which I mean, it's tight end, so it's a little different, but if he tests well, he'll be drafted well. Yeah. Uh, side note, the Bears have the seventh pick. In the second round? Yeah. yeah. If, if Alave if falls, which I don't think he will, if Alave falls, don't be surprised if he goes to the that's, Bears. That's pretty close to the ballpark I put him in. But I, I just don't know how people have him at wide receiver five. So that's that's where I'm confused. Uh, next on the list, Nicholas Petit Friere. I, I, I kind of see him going in the second or third round. He's a early second round pick to me. Yeah, I think he's top 10 in the second round. One of those teams that either didn't have a first round pick. Like, I mean, like also he could go to the Bears because they need an offensive lineman. One of those teams that didn't have a first round pick are one of those teams who offensive tackle wasn't their number one priority and they needed a running. They needed a, a safety or a wide receiver or something like that. I think he goes in the top 10, 15 in the um Second round, which sucks because I want I want him to go to the Colts so bad. I just think yeah. I think he's gonna get drafted right before we're and I think we're like what pick are we? We're we're pick sixteen. I think he goes right before us because we don't have a first round pick either. Gotcha. Yeah, so that's I think he's probably in that uh, yeah, but like it's like tackle. It's kind of a flavor thing too. He can play both sides though. He played right tackle in college. He played left tackle, so that that helps him a little bit for sure. Yeah. Uh, the, the next guy on the list I've got here is Thayer Munford. I think I tiered him wrong. I I don't think he's going to get drafted very high. I I, I, I kind of see him late third fourth round guy. I honestly see him as like a sixth or seventh round guy. Really? Just because he's old. I think yeah. I think a lot of people are going to say he looked kind of weak on film, which at times he did against better competition. Um, I think his versatility is what's going to save him though. I think I think his career is going to be because you and I have talked about this before. NFL teams use eight or nine linemen on their roster, mm-hmm. and he has played guard, tackle. He's played both tackles, so he really is exactly what an NFL team is looking for as a depth piece to their offensive line. Yeah, he's going to be a good swing guy, and if he comes in and works and keep it keeps his head down, he's going to have a ten year career. Yeah, and I. I whether he, he'll start some years, he'll be a backup some years, but he'll always have a place to play. Yeah. And I think that's worth like a late third, fourth round pick, but, it, but largely, I don't know, but it, it's true. Like he, he has, he has the widest range for me. Yeah. I don't like, think he goes, he, I definitely don't think he goes more than later than halfway through the sixth round. The only way I think that happens is if he tests really bad, but anywhere between halfway through the third and halfway through the sixth, I see he, he could come off the board. And the he's one of those guys. Would, once you get him in an interview, he's going to be yeah. incredible. I think, so. I think that'll help. Um, and I think, um, there's going to be a random run on tackles, which is going to boost his stock. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And everyone needs tackles in the league. So, yeah, it's valuable. And I, he's definitely not just going to be a camp body. He's someone you could take and get in a year and probably work on the conditioning specific you want for him and getting his body to that NFL level. Because 
it's, it's a challenge in college, regardless of what college you go to as an offensive lineman to work on your body the way you need to. It's just hard. It's just a hard thing to do to stay at that size, maintain that size, maintain that playing strength through 14-game season with all the limitations on working out and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, so, so next next list, we've got, we've got the two defensive linemen uh, that are going to get drafted for sure. I've got Haskell Garrett here. Uh, I think – I think his pass rushing is going to help him a lot, but he is a little bit undersized for a true nose tackle, and he's a little too unathletic to be an NFL three technique. Yeah, I think Haskell Garrett's a fourth-round guy, and I think Tyreek Smith is a sixth-round guy. And I I still think both of them are going to have productive careers. Yeah, I I think – I think Haskell Garrett is this year's Jonathan Cooper. Like they're gonna draft him low because for whatever. All the and NFL they're, like they're gonna get him they're gonna get him in, in camp and they're gonna be like, Jesus Christ. Like Jonathan Cooper is gonna have like a twelve year career. He's gonna like he's gonna amass like seventy, yeah. eighty sacks in his in his career, he's which is like he's gonna be a Bronco probably. Yeah. Like he's gonna be a freaking stud. Like he's and not a Hall of Fame guy, but he's gonna be one of those guys that Broncos fans like love. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Ring of honor type ring of honor type of guy if he doesn't get injured. Yeah, just one that the fan base, uh, every fan base has one guy that's been there forever. Everyone's like, yeah, that's our guy. Uh, that's I think I can see Haskell Garrett being that too. So and then Tyreek Smith, I think if his because we've seen Tyreek Smith be an absolutely dominant football player, and we've seen him also disappear for long stretches. And I think a big thing that's been an issue with him is his health. So you combine if he could stay healthy, I think he's going to be a steal in this draft. Yeah, but I still think just the lack of consistency and it's once you get to like draft grade yeah, for sure. One, yeah, once you get to like fourth, fifth, and sixth round guys, you want guys who also play special teams, and no one. No defensive end really plays special teams because their bodies are different. So I think yeah. that's going to hurt him a little bit. I think he's a six round guy. I think, you know, he's going to be one of those guys that either gets cut because he can't stay healthy or is like a good rotational pass rusher. But I don't think he has star potential. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, he's an interesting player because it just, he never was able to put together full seasons. Which is unfortunate because he's definitely a good. He's definitely good. And yeah, I mean, we've seen it against Clemson. He dominated. He had a dominant couple games this season. So I think he he's one of my favorite players. But I, I'm excited. To, I'm excited to see what he does because I think he's capable of a lot. I just don't know where it's going to end up. Yeah, that's, it's going to be very interesting to see. And um, then yeah. So we got our three guys. I think all three of these guys are going to go undrafted. I think Demario McCall gets a seventh round as a uh, punt returner. I, I think I, get it. I think he's athletic enough. I think he's going to test well. If he gets a combine invite, I, I think he's got an opportunity to be dangerous. I just don't think he will. Yeah, um, he's going to be like three picks above Mr. Irrelevant. He's going to be a pro day superstar. Yeah. Um, Antoine he, Jackson into that seventh round. Antoine Jackson, I just don't. He, 
I thought he was going to stay. I, apparently, he's out. But maybe he already used his extra year of eligibility. I think that's why he's yeah. gone. Master Teague surprised me too because I thought he was going to transfer um, and like I, get a year as like a stud. So I don't think he's going to get drafted, but I think he's going to make a team and make a practice squad. But Master Teague also can be a special teams guy, like you said. That that that's that is true. He does play special teams. He could do punt. He could be a personal protector. He could be a wing on punt return or punt coverage. Yeah, punt coverage. He could run down on kickoffs. He could be a blocker and up back on kickoff return. So I think there's a lot of value in his build and his body. And I think the NFL Master- loves change and they love change of pace backs and he's a power back. Master Teague is getting drafted to the Baltimore Ravens and they're going to move him to fullback. You heard it here first. Yeah, that's, that's an option too. So there's a lot of things you like. Master Teague is kind of uh, a clay mold. Yes, he was a running back, but you can do a lot of things with him. Yeah, I, I think one of those very run-heavy teams, I don't think the 49ers, just because they have 17 running backs and Trey Sermon didn't sniff the field. Yeah, and they used like Debo the, Samuel there instead of their running yeah, backs. I mean, hey. He's, I, he's good. So. Master Teague is the perfect Ravens pick, like the perfect sixth or seventh round or camp invite who ends up like getting uh, – because they yeah. use – I mean, he's, he's – uh, crap, what is his name? They have like two of him on the roster already. They're just old. Yeah, like Gus uh, Edwards and well, Gus Edwards isn't old. Who's the old one? Uh, who's, the, who's the starter that everyone didn't believe that J.K. was going to take the job from? Oh, I um, remember. Uh, whatever. Either way, the Ravens have a Master Teague on the roster. I think he yeah, and- is a solid Ravens pick. Yeah, so Master Teague gets up in the Ravens. Buck off. That's a guarantee. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think uh, I think we've ran pretty long today. I think we've given everybody enough of us for the week. Uh, hope you guys enjoyed hanging out with us. We had um, some COVID cancellations. Ohio State is now no longer playing Nebraska this Saturday, so erase it from your calendars. Um, and then next week's game's in jeopardy because Minnesota recently had a COVID outbreak, so we'll see if they have the scholarship numbers to play Ohio State basketball next week. But for me, that's it. That's all I got today. Uh, anything else, Jordan? Uh, no. <clears throat> that, that's that's all I got. Uh, I think it was a good show. I think we got to talk about a lot of really fun things. Yeah, I, um, I, I just want to say, I just hope you guys had fun with us because me and Jordan were just kind of messing around this whole time, so... Yeah, it was it was a great show. Um, Put this on during work. We're just trying to change your vibes for the day. Um, yeah, I, and and I would just like to announce while we're here, um, I am officially the co-host and associate host of the Buck Off Podcast. I am also um, assistant editor. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I, I am a and recruiting I'm a director. Yeah, yeah, I, I am the I am the host and the the uh, assistant editor for um, the i seventy show. So, yeah, I, new titles. I wonder if that comes with new pay. I'm, I'm not sure, but I do have some new titles. And that's what it's all about. And uh, uh, we, so yeah, uh, yeah. Well, we'll, uh, we'll leave you guys with that. <laughs> I, honestly, that was a good one. That was a good bit right there. That was a good one. Uh, you guys can find me on social media. You. Can, Find me at Chris Reddy CFB, and then you can find the show at Buck Off Pod. Make sure you're following because we have a lot of fun there too. Jordan, where can we find you? You can find me at on Twitter at JordanW330. 
and we're still trying to work on some articles so make sure you check those out when we write them um we will see you guys next friday thank you guys for coming as always it was a pleasure go bucks